The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying um, partway through it. One guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Here are the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II. The Courage and Valor podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. When something is missing that shouldn't be missing with no trace left, it can become a puzzle and a mystery. And in this episode, I'm speaking with three men who have been devoting their time to solving riddles of uh, missing aeroplanes in New Zealand. I'd like to welcome to the show Gavin Grimmer, who's on the line from Hastings. Hi, Gavin. Yeah, hi, Dave. And uh, the Reverend Richard War, who is in Auckland. Hi, Richard. Hi, Dave. And Chris Rudge, who's down in... Littleton. Littleton. Ah, you're in Littleton. Okay. Hi, hi guys. Hi, Dave. How's it going? Good. Now, um, I want to ask each of you how uh, you guys all first got into this topic of missing aeroplanes one by one. So, Gavin, how did you get into, into it? How did you discover it? And when did you discover the well, topic? It was my mother-in-law insisted I read a book, which I hadn't read books in years, and I happened to read it, and it was actually one of Richard's books, and uh, ah. and um, it uh, it's just quite fascinated from me the subject, and sort of things went from there, and I've uh, never really stopped since. <laughs> okay, and when was that? Oh, 
2007, I think. What, what are we now? No, it'll be 2005. Right, right. So. And uh, Richard, how did you get into the subject? <laughs> well, I think, like many, you know, influenced by other family, and uh, my father was um, um, a wartime pilot and then a civil pilot um, in the South Island in the, in the 50s and 60s, so my childhood was spent around hangars and planes, and only many years later, after I'd done a history degree at uh, Massey University, the stories began to sort of uh, come back and haunt me, if you like. <laughs> so I got involved in research and writing, and one of the books was about um, the missing uh, de Havilland dragonfly and Brian Chadwick. Right, right, of course. So uh, you've been at it for quite a while, haven't you? Yeah, working research and writing on aviation books about 25 years. And uh, as I say, one of the books uh, about 10 years ago was really related to, to sort of lost aircraft. Right, right. And uh, Chris, you've done a book on lost aircraft as well. And um, when did you first get into the subject and how and when? Um, I think the first time I was interested in it was probably an article that was in the um, Wings magazine, and I'm just guessing probably around about 80, 1985. And then I was uh, looking for a, a propeller to go on the wall at home just as a bit of an ornament, and I ended up buying um, a propeller from a guy in Rangiora. It happened to be the spare propeller off the missing dragonfly, which Richard's just mentioned. And right. it was... Um, yeah, spare propeller at the time it was with the Canterbury Euro Club. And so I went home and matched up the numbers on the propeller and it matched that of a Dragonfly aircraft. But what was very interesting was the fact I had bought the propeller on the anniversary of the day the aircraft went missing. Mm. So mm. it meant missing right. in 1962. And I purchased that propeller on the same day in 1995. So I thought about writing a book on um, the missing Dragonfly. And yep. I thought, no, it would go bigger than that. And, of course, I compiled a book which was published in 2001 on um, missing aircraft in New Zealand uh, from 1928 to 2000. Right, amazing. Okay. Um, so the whole concept of aircraft that have gone missing, can you give us a basic overview of how many are currently missing, vanished without any trace out there? So you, do, you want me to answer that one, uh... Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I did, because uh, it was one of the questions you asked uh, prior to the, uh, the interview here. The, um, you had a look through the, the book there, and there were uh, up to uh, 2000, uh, there were 16 aircraft that are missing um, without trace. Uh, included in my book are two other sections. There are a dozen aircraft that were lost and found. So that means they were never found during the official search period. So typically uh, hunters uh, came across the remains in the bush at some uh, later date. So there's 12 of those aircraft. And then another 14 uh, that appear in my book are aircraft that effectively have crashed in the sea. Um, and in two cases, um, the pilot's body has been located. Um, in the other cases, uh, some wreckage has been found. So it's only been like a wheel that's washed up on shore but the bulk of the wreckage has never been located. Subsequent to that book being written, uh, there are three other aircraft that would have, um, if I'd you know, updated the book, would feature in that, and that includes uh, two helicopters that were uh, not found in the official search period and have since been found. They're all post-2000, and one yeah. biplane that went missing recently up in the um, Hauraki Gulf area. Right, wasn't that found? Yes, it was, yep. So all oh, those yeah. uh, aircraft post 2000 um, have been found and so basically the book as I wrote it still stands the the, the aircraft mm. are missing without trace are still missing without trace so when was the last aircraft um, that disappeared and hasn't been found but how long ago was that good question got to flick through my book uh, the last one was <laughs> the uh, Cessna 180 which was uh, ZK MQ. MQ yeah and that was uh, on a flight from um, Christchurch to um, South Westland um, basically the aircraft um, was a yeah, white bait aircraft and um, doing a return flight down there um, basically southwesterly weather with schools coming through and um, yeah just didn't turn up at the um, Waitoto was the airstrip that it was heading for and uh, never arrived there so yeah large search was done and um, yeah, various theories put put forward as to what could have possibly happened. Uh, unfortunately, no wreckage found. So, um, you know, very interesting for the family court. And uh, but uh, there were several sightings around the Haas area. And um, if they were in fact aircraft, and there's no reason to disbelieve that, uh, one possible scenario which was put forward by um, 
um, his dad was basically that the, the aircraft may have gone out to, to the sort of the ocean a little bit to allow school to go through, and um, of course there may have been some spatial disorientation and the aircraft in a bit of a rain squall or something like that. Um, unfortunately, you know, hit the sea out the coast. Why no wreckage was uh, washed ashore, um, you know, nobody knows. Um, I think the, the important thing, and when you're talking about missing aircraft, is um, particularly ones that are missing without trace. So we can only talk in, in sort of the realms of possibility or, hey, this was likely or this was unlikely, uh, something like that. Well, so, so what was, what, what's the, the earliest missing aircraft? What, when's, um, how far back did the missing aircraft go? goes back to 1928. So um, the aircraft that I looked at, they include, um, well, three incidents where aircraft were coming into New Zealand. And there was a, an aircraft called a B-1 Brougham, which was very similar to the um, Spirit of St. Louis uh, that was flown across the um, Atlantic, first solo flight by Lindbergh. And that was being flown by a couple of guys, Hood and Moncrief, very well known in early aviation. And they were trying right. to uh, get through to New Zealand. Um, so very similar aircraft. And... Um, but yeah, never made it. Their wives are waiting for them at Trentham Racecourse. Um, this was uh, 10th of January 1928. And uh, never turned up. So a lot of people have searched for that aircraft over the years because, of course, it would rewrite history. The first aircraft to have flown the Tasman successfully was the Southern Cross. Um, and so with Kingsford Smith and his crew, so to find that aircraft on land in New Zealand would you know, rewrite the history books. Um, probable cause of that would have been, in my view, because I did a lot of research on it, probably the most that's ever been done on that aircraft, and it's the biggest chapter in the book. But my yeah, conclusion was one of the most likely scenarios was fuel starvation, so that the aircraft right. never actually got to New Zealand. It probably got quite close, probably within the region of 100 nautical miles, even closer than that. Uh, probably had fuel starvation and uh, ended up in the sea. Of course, in those days, you know, we didn't have GPS, we didn't have any way of tracking aircraft, uh, which is actually still true today in some respects. If you look at the in, in, um, NH, uh, was it 370, the, the aircraft that was in oh. the uh, south of uh, southwest of Perth, um, this is the last thought location of that aircraft. And surprisingly, you know, we still don't have on big airliners today. Um, basic GPS positioning equipment that, that tracks an aircraft uh, all the time. So, but in those days they didn't have that, and so by the time they put out you know, large ships to search the area, there was uh, no trace of the aircraft found. Right. Now, Gavin, you'll probably remember um, within the last two years on the Wings of New Zealand Forum, there was discussion of wreckage being found, and it was suggested it may have been the Hood and Moncrief aircraft. Um, do you remember that? Yeah, that was the one down at um, from Golden Bay, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, somewhere down there. Yeah, yeah. What did, what did it turn out to be? Uh, they think it was just a um, old crane from a mine. Oh, um, oh okay. area, you know, the, the, it was the um, welded up sort of uh, girder frame. Yep. They, yep. they think that was what the pe person saw. They they saw it years back, you know. Right. I got you. So, what's the most typical terrain that the aircraft, are, um, the one, not the ones that seem to disappear at sea, but um, the ones that are thought to still be on land, are they going into really rugged bush? Um, yeah, a lot of them are. A lot of them were that were lost and found. Um, where there was a number of aircraft cracked into the Paroos, um, also um, Mount Taranaki. Um, so a lot of those, uh, they were wartime ones where guys were on navigation exercises and. Um, you know, they were actually pushed into yeah, quite rugged weather. You know, they sort of, I guess the feeling was that, hey, if you're going to fly, you know, bomber missions in, into Europe and places like that in bad weather, you need to do the same here in New Zealand. So they were pushing them off into quite bad weather and, of course, um, instrument flying in, in clouds. And it was in those days, it was all dead reckoning. So you'd end up not being exactly where you thought you were. And, of course, at the wrong attitude, wrong place, you'd hit the top of a ridge and um, go on like that. And so, you know, quite incredibly, as I said, 12 of those aircraft uh, were lost and found, and almost universally they were found by hunters. So your typical right. scenario is a hunter going up a ridge, um, you know, deer-stalking or whatever, and they come across the the wreckage at that point. And, of course, that's a point a plane is going to hit as, as it just skims across the mountain and will whack into the, the top of a ridge. But the place that would be by far the most difficult and of course Richard would be able to comment on this was the um, you know place where a possible place where the de Havilland dragonfly has gone and uh, there are 
three other aircraft in the Fiordland area. Um, Cessna 180, there's a Cherokee uh, down that area as well. And, you know, to, to, for an aircraft to go into forest, I mean, you it's, it's even harder than a, a needle in a haystack. Um, and there is many examples. A good one was a Cessna caravan flying from Wellington into Coromico and uh, the Marlborough Sounds, which um, uh, took a bit of a shortcut, sadly, and hit the top of a ridge. I think there were one, if not two, survivors of that uh, accident. But the um, the aircraft, even though it hit, was sending out a um, an ELT signal. The helicopter went in to locate it. I mean, couldn't spot it directly overhead. And because this right. thing had gone right near the top of the ridge through the trees, a large aircraft and with white wings and couldn't be seen. And it was only when the helicopter came around side on and then peered through the trees uh, into the... Um, under the, the, the canopy of the trees, could you actually see the aircraft? And I've right. heard of similar stories uh, even down Canterbury here where guys were doing mountain flying, um, did a reversal turn in the valley. They obviously misjudged things and they, they mushed their aircraft into the top of the trees. Um, they walked away from that accident, but in subsequent um, recover the aircraft, they flew in a helicopter. They had the GPS coordinates of the aircraft and they didn't locate it until they were literally, they had to move the helicopter forward, left, right, back, you know, 10 metres. And then eventually they saw it below them. So to try and find an aircraft in the areas of, the, um, you know, like Fjordland with this heavy bush, um, incredibly difficult. And of course, the big exciting thing these days is um, whether you can actually locate a missing aircraft using, um, using geomagnetic data. Because if you've got a very small anomaly where it's picking up the um, steel of a... Um, you know, a steel-framed aircraft or uh, steel in the engine, and uh, it can be located that way, then, you know, we're into a very different area as opposed to those you know, going into areas and thinking, well, we'll just, you know, search this area. Even if you did a grid search, you know, 10-metre 10, 10 uh, grid search, I mean, you'd still be very, very lucky to actually find an aircraft. So um, very difficult. So I guess especially with the camouf uh, camouflage wartime aircraft as well. Absolutely, yeah. So... Um, Richard, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the dragonfly disappearance? Mm. Well, Chris, I think, has given a very um, good sort of summation there about uh, the difficulty of the terrain, especially in the South Island, and Gavin knows that only too well. <laughs> but um, I, I, I rather sort of facetiously mentioned in my lost book in 2005 the sort of Bermuda Triangle of the South from um, um, to Milford Sound to... Um, Mount Aspiring to Hunt. And uh, there's the six aircraft that were missing, and uh, uh, quite a number of uh, passengers and pilots still missing, in fact. So, my primary interest has been the Haviland Dragonflies at KAFB that went missing on a flight from uh, Christchurch International Airport to charter flight to Milford Sound on the 12th of February 1962. And Chadwick was a well-known pioneer post-war pilot, and the Dragonfly was a well-known old aircraft, and uh, four passengers, and uh, took off from Christchurch and uh, basically disappeared. A, a number of people reckon they'd seen it. There's all sorts of sightings, as Gavin and I know well. And <laughs> it really captured public imagination. Here was five people on a plane in 1962 from an international airport that disappeared. Right, that's crazy. Um, the uh, the aircraft now, of course, there'd be very little left because it was made of wood and, and fabric, wasn't it? Well, it's uh, people often say that for a you know um, um, timber, just uh, metal on the aircraft as well. But um, the, the Dragon, uh, the Haviland Dragon, crashed at Kawatiri near Murchison in 1944, and I've I've been to the crash site myself, and some of the wreckage is still hanging in the trees. And okay. uh, metal framing and all kinds of little bits and pieces on the um, on the forest floor. So you'd be very surprised, particularly if the wreckage fell, as Chris just mentioned, you know, through the canopy is contained. Even in a wet environment, you'd be very surprised what's still there even after 50 years. Okay, with an with an all metal aircraft, for example, the Cessna or um, Corsair, yeah, Corsair, yeah. If it's a really hot day, would a um, heat-seeking sort of camera, uh, what are they called, the FLIR cameras, would they pick it up maybe? If it's if the if the aircraft's warmed up in the day. The big problem with that one is that if um, you, you've got to wait till the air outside cools down first, which is normally around the night time, and the right. problem is then uh, who's going to 
fly around there in the dark trying to find it. It's, yeah, because you'll end, you'll end up with another crash aircraft, yeah, probably. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> Bad idea then. <laughs> yeah, for sort of, uh, I've had thought long and hard about that one, but uh, maybe nowadays with uh, quadcopters and things like that, things that are a bit more disposable, um, there's a potential there, but, you know, it's sort of still hard going. Well, exactly. In fact, some of the... Um... The bigger drones, the what are they called, the UAVs that they got now, that would be the perfect technology for racing up and down those valleys, wouldn't it? Yeah, but, um, yeah, there is better technology coming out. We were actually um, just about to start trying to raise finance. We've had an offer by a crowd in America that have got the latest technology of foliage penetrating radar and they can use this stuff they can fly through at quite high speed and do a, a wide sweep of probably two or three miles at once and and pick up every piece of metal right through that whole area at the same time but um, you know up till now it's just been too expensive um, a little while back we we got a quote from a crowd um in Sweden, I think it might have been, um, that who were prepared to come over and do it for us, but they were talking a million bucks just to provide us with the information. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, this crowd in America has offered to do it free of charge for us, but we've just got to find um, 25 grand to US setters to cover their overheads. So, uh, okay. it's starting to get into, um, you know, sort of. Um, reasonable bounds of uh, achieving it so who knows what the, the future will hold you know right and and the research that the three of you have done has has anything um led to to new leads and uh, opened up cases where the where the aircraft have actually been found or they're close to being found because of the research there wasn't a, the clues and things that weren't originally seen by the search party at the time um, well, I, I mean, I guess the um, you know, from from selling my book, I've talked to a lot of people who often come to me and claim that they've they've know where the aircraft is or things like that. And you know, I mean, I always go back to them and sort of say, well, if you know where it is, you know, it's almost like they're trying to keep a secret. It's what they're sitting on a pot of gold, whereas there's right. no very little value there. But what, what the value is, is, of course, is the um, you know putting to rest the. For the family, you know, that they need to know what happened to to their loved ones or or whatever, and that's the most important thing in the case of missing aircraft. Um, but Absolutely. certainly, the I think the books and the research that everyone's done is um, getting people talking. Um, one of the most exciting uh, possibilities in finding an aircraft would be the Corsair on the west coast, because there was uh, four aircraft uh, travelling Westport to Christchurch, and of course they entered cloud um, and then began to turn back when one dropped out of the formation. So by working out the speeds of the aircraft have been flying, at what point they dropped out, um, and if that the aircraft that was missing there actually did a spiral dive and ended up in the forest, uh, there's a very good chance that um, you know with again geomagnetic mm -hmm. survey you may be able to locate that aircraft because it's a fairly Mm -hmm. you know, compared to many of the other searches, it's a relatively small search area. So there are possibilities where people could, um, using research and information that is there, actually find aircraft that are missing. Mm. Right, right. And um, I'm hoping to talk with uh, Daniel and Matt Hayes, uh, the brothers that mm. have been searching. Yep. Um, they were going to be on here tonight, but unfortunately they couldn't make it. So we're going to do a, a separate recording with them at some stage. Um, but they're very enthusiastic young fellas that have been getting up into the bush there, aren't they? So uh, it should be um, yeah. should be good to talk to them. Uh, Dave, um, just commenting on the book. So I, I think Chris Rudge's book, which is you know so comprehensive, has really introduced to the public you know the range of the aircraft that are that are that are missing without trace. My own lost book and and, and Gavin's you know traced um, but not yet found uh, book. I think Chris is right. It's what it's done. It's sort of um, teased the imagination of the public about these aircraft. Right. And so there's been, you know, a number of television programs, documentaries, many newspaper articles. There's one on the Herald related to lost aircraft just two weeks ago. Right. And I'm a bit like Chris. I get, uh, and Gavin's the same, I'm sure, lots of people emailing and phoning with all sorts of theories. You know, my brother's friend's neighbour kicked over something on some mountain hill, you know, 25 years ago. And, yep. uh, you know, what do you think, Richard? 
<laughs> and so there's a lot of interest and goodwill there, Dave, but um, as Chris was saying too, you, you know, a lot of it can be kind of discounted. But I, I am always encouraging the people to step forward because you never know when a missing piece of the jigsaw, you know, lands on your desk or, you know, on the phone. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the... The books are so accessible too. You can you can find these books uh, and start thinking about it yourself. And and I, I'm sure that there must be a lot of people who have read the books have thought, hey, I want to go search myself, or I want to do some research. Actually, I mentioned in the front of front of my last book, 2005. I've got a little a little note inside the title page that says, um, "Caution: Reading this book might give you dragonfly fever." <laughs> a condition of nervous enthusiasm and thinking about the dragonfly ZKAFB can lead to a compulsion to try and find it. And Gavin Grimmer got that <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my wife doesn't really thank you for it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about um, the. Are there, I mean, there's you three who are well known in the field, but there must be other people out there that you you're all in contact with. Do you ever get together and go out and have searches, that sort of thing? Well, I think um, I, I've certainly, in terms of the dragonfly, had a number of people who have been deliberate even before the book was published in terms of searches. And uh, you know, I can think of Lou Bone and Nelson who who did um, many many. Uh, uh, you know, on the ground searches for where he thought the dragonfly was. And I think since the books, I think there's been many more deliberate attempts. I'm aware of an older guy in Dunedin, uh, Mr. Pete, I think it's Neville, uh, not Neville, uh, not Neville, Peter, another chap by the name of Pete, who was dropped into Milford Sound. Gavin, you'll remember him, I think. And literally yeah. three months of time over the summer, um, the looking for lost aircraft. <laughs> so okay. the public isn't always aware of the kind of private searches that are done for good reason, because people are often a bit sensitive that look, you know, we're not entirely sure. We'll give it our best shot. So I think most summits, there's some deliberate searching by trampers, you know, mountaineers, and people like Gavin Grimmer who have really led the way. It's just surprising what initiatives have been taken. Right, right. And of course, uh, the internet must help as well, keeping in touch with uh, everybody else. Yeah, yeah well, I think communication is that much easier, you know, over and above the written word. And Gavin, you, why don't you, you tell the audience about um, your work with the, um, with the website? Because I think that's opened a whole new doorway, hasn't it? It, it has, yeah. I, I've got oh, hundreds of leads. Um, if you just had a look at my email lists, I've, I've had, had, had to become quite disciplined and um, just file everything because I just get so many people contacting me all the time. Um, and, of course, you just lose track. i got so much going through my head, I, I can't remember hardly any of it half the time. I've just got to be able to refer back to it. But it started off where I ran the website, and now it runs me. So mm -hmm. um, a website, um, I think I'm up to about 330 pages or so. Um, I've actually covered um, – I've, I've mainly tried, obviously, to – just cover the ones that are likely to be found on land. Um, uh, I've done, uh, and I mainly, a lot of my role has changed from actually going out searching to um, um, to researching a, a lot of it to try and work out the most likely area it's likely to be in so that other mm. people keep an eye open. Mm. Um, Especially when people are flying through, I always find, I don't know if you're the same, Chris, um, when you're flying along, when you're flying over bush, you're not actually looking down at the bush, you're looking at, at where you want to go, hoping that it'll hurry up and come because of the bad country below you, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, But if you know there's likely uh, a likelihood that there's a missing aeroplane down somewhere below you, you're going to be looking, you know. Yeah. And um, that's what a lot of mine has changed for from from the actual searching because um, actual sh searching is just getting a little bit hard for me. I was just getting older and knees giving out and things like this. So, um, um, but um, yeah, it, the big thing is just keep the story going. You know, they reckon that helicopter. I was told by the media that um, 
the main reason they reckon that got found was because we'd all kept the story alive and just right. keep pumping the, the public all the time to just keep looking, you know. And that, that helicopter pilot was flying along and he said he just saw a bit of a glint on the ground and he thought, oh, and knowing that there was a helicopter missing in that area somewhere. And he went back and had another look and sure enough, here was the helicopter in a million pieces, you know. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's Gavin, just a matter Gavin. Uh, Gavin, another interesting work that you've done is on the whole, you know, Google Earth, looking at older photographs to see if you can pick something that's unusual, you know, in the in the bush line or something. You want to talk about that? Yeah, that was just something. With, with me, I'm a person that I hate being beat by anything, and so I just keep, I'm awake half the nights dreaming up ideas of how I can um, achieve different things, you know, and um, and and I'm I've got to teach myself all these different things. And but um, I've found that by getting access to old aerial photos, you can spend quite a lot of time stretching them into place and overlaying them, and then you can go in in 3D. Um, you can measure the object, whatever, um, and um, it's just another way of looking. I've, I've actually found that Google Earth on its own is just totally useless for looking for aeroplanes. Um, you can actually go to sites where you know there are aeroplanes there and you still can't see them. So um, mm. I've, I've given up on that. And it's, I, you wouldn't believe the amount of people I spend hours trying to convince that it, they, they're wasting their time. But, um, you know, who knows? One day somebody might prove me wrong. But, you know. <laughs> Well, actually, a good example of that is uh, when Steve Fawcett went missing in the um, Sierra Nevadas, and everybody went onto Google Earth, didn't they? Uh, yeah. um, well, onto the, and they opened up to real time, didn't they? Yeah, I was, was going to bring, and bring they, that up. Yeah, that's a, yeah. a very, very good way to search. And I think his was the first where they actually did that. And, um, of course, one pe thing people have to realise is with Google Earth, we're only seeing um, it at a certain resolution. The actual yeah. resolution that it's um, coming off those satellites is a lot higher. And in the case with Steve Fawcett, yeah, they got they you could uh, grab um, certain areas of of your choice, and then you could compare the current image taken post the aircraft going missing with the previous. And um, it was quite surprising in those searches what was actually brought up. I mean, I did I spent and yeah, you could spend hundreds of hours if you wanted searching. And I um, because I uh, met Steve through gliding, and so I was interested in helping out as well. And it seemed you know, particularly from people at a great distance, it's some way of getting involved. Mm. And um, But I, I pulled up an aircraft on that and, um, you know, sort of jumped out of me on a page. And, of course, um, yeah, it was interesting because it was a 737 flying probably at 20,000, 30,000 feet <laughs> that came up on the image. And so people were finding finding images like that. And I actually explored that whole concept. And that was done, of course, in uh, MA. Um, 370. They, uh, there were images there that were popped up in the first search area. Um, uh, people were given images to, to look at to see if they could you know, find anything. And, you know, it was surprising what, what people were pulling up. I mean, yeah, sure, in that case, because that's not where the aircraft was, but people were pulling up ships and, and whales and, and things like that. And that whole concept of, um, you know, as, as Gavin said, it's not rocket science. And technically, if there was an aircraft there and you had high-definition image uh, imagery, you could actually um, define, um, you know, you could, you could find an aircraft. And I actually use that whole uh, concept in a, a novel I wrote. I've done two non-fiction books, but I've written a, a book called The Alaskan Incident. And basically that's about some a couple of guys who go looking for aircraft and go to old uh, um, crash sites. But they also, one of the guys is developing a software program where he does exactly that, where he uh, has a, um, a computer that gathers images of uh, certain areas, obviously away from civilization. And then it, it scans, he's got a program which looks for specific shapes. So you've got to eliminate things like snow and, um, you know, natural shapes in the environment, but things that have got straight edges like, you know, wings or tailplanes and things like that. And so what the computer program did was collect uh, those images for him to then look at later on. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Very interesting stuff. Mm. Yeah, I also find, though, um, uh, yeah, in open area, you'd pick up aeroplanes, but in the bush down there, it's there's so many illusions. It's it's unbelievable. Um, I'm just thinking of the helicopter one that where I did a flight down there, and I actually had um, high resolution um, photo photographs I took and I picked up an object that I was absolutely sure was a helicopter and um, we actually got a, another helicopter to go in and check it out and 
turned out it was just a big slimy rock, you know. So I read, read, made a real idiot of myself because the helicopter had to go a long way to check it out, you know. But, um, yeah, you know, um, I, I put all that on my website so that people can see for themselves just how hard it is, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so, Richard, you said that you were fascinated by the, the the dragonfly case are there any other cases in particular that catch your imagination well i i think the um i hinted at the sort of new zealand's bermuda triangle this sort of you know milford sound to to Haas to mount aspiring and this um there is the five aircraft we think somewhere in that vicinity and um 21 men women and children so I'm particularly interested in that so those sort of southern uh, mysteries, and Gavin's just well expressed how rugged. I don't know if the public also always appreciates just how rugged the mountains, the ravines, you know, whether it's in, at, not even at high altitude, just how thick the bush and the forest cover can be. So, you know, these aircraft are foreign objects that have passed through the canopy, and uh, now to be found, you know, you're going to have to kick them. So, you know, tramper, you know, someone off the beaten track, you'd have to kick it to see it. So that's why it's so difficult. But it does present sort of tantalizing mystery. And I think Gavin's website and the books that Chris and, and I have done all help. But the, 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 um, the website in particular, I think, has, has really excited people. And as I mentioned before, Dave, you know, there's all sorts of people, especially every summertime in New Zealand, who are deliberately, intentionally, looking for these lost aircraft, but the public won't know that. Alan Pate was the fellow, the old right, fellow that was looking yes, right, yeah. It was incredible. He'll go in the bush for three or four weeks with hardly any food and, and just, you know, goes hard out, whereas I get in there and I, I can't get out of there. It's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, no, I, um, I met a chap at... Uh, Omaka at one of the classic fighters air shows a few years ago. It was probably about three air shows ago. Uh, he he worked for Department of Conservation, and he lived in somewhere near Takaka. Um, but he was telling me that uh, he'd always wanted to uh, walk the length of the South Island. And he's a very fit guy. He's probably about sixty something. And and he was working for about three months in the very bottom of Fiordland where nobody lives. He was working on some islands there. And he worked out this plan that when he finished that job, he was going to walk home all the way up the length of the, of the South Island. And so he had it all planned out. In certain parts, he'd have one of the dock helicopter um, contractors come in and drop off food or, or maybe pick him up and take him out to town so he could have a bath and, and stuff like that and then come back in. But he did it and he said it took him about six months. So he was walk, walking for a while and then he'd stop at homesteads and, and maybe to have a week off or something like that. But he told me that he went through pretty much mostly rugged country where no one had ever gone. And he saw, I think he said, three different crashed aeroplanes. Yeah. And and he said he just happened upon them. And he said he doesn't know why they were in his path. And he took um, he took GPS coordinates of them. And he, was, he said he's going to check them out afterwards. But I don't know if he ever found if they were missing or... Or not, but it just seems strange because that's that kind of area you're talking about, that Bermuda Triangle mm. of of the Fiordland area, that he was really going through all that rugged bush. So, yeah, interesting mm. stuff. Yeah, that's there are the some. Um, so I was just going to say, yeah. there's are some um, definitely a lot of known wrecks out there as well, and and right. um, yeah, there's uh, I think there's a, a, a Devon, to Devon, Devon actually, and the from memory it's in between uh, Wanaka and Omarama sitting up on the tops there. So, um, yeah, there's, there's no doubt um, there are yeah, definitely uh, crashes or wrecks. And if you think about all the, the days of um, helicopters and these more like the fixed-wing aircraft operating in the southwestland during the de-recovery days, I mean, there's uh, definitely wrecks of aircraft uh, right throughout that area. Right, yeah, yeah. Can guarantee it. I, I think one of the other problems, too, is when people don't realise that there's a possibility of an aeroplane um, missing in a certain area, they come across these different things and they think, oh, everybody knows about that, and they don't think any more of it. You know, and that's, I've heard so many cases of that. And of course, then when you question about it, so many years have gone past, they can't remember where it was where they saw it. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's really frustrating. We, we've yeah. got a tiger moth up around here that um, a fellow 
claimed he'd seen it and all the rest and just thought thought everybody else knew about it. And he's since died. And, of course, we, we can't find out where he saw it, of course. So mm. that one's still a big mystery. So, you know. Yeah. One, one good thing with the modern technology, of course, is if you take a photograph of the the item, I mean, if you can't carry it out mm. and it's uh, as an aircraft item and you photograph it. Of course, these days with um, most people use, use, either using smartphones or um, cameras, they, they've got GPS on them. So they're actually recording the actual position of that uh, photograph. And um, in fact, I had a friend who did that. He posted a, a photograph. It was when Wigram was getting carved up uh, for residential housing. And he took a photograph from a particular angle and sort of said, guess where? And of course, I just um, right-clicked on the photograph and there was all the, you know, the properties of the photograph and there was the location it was taken from. So you know, right. I could e- email them back and sort of say, oh, it's a photograph of Wigram. How'd you know that? You know, that's, that's, um, so that, that stuff could help. You know, If you have a, a tramper that goes through an area and sees you know, a bit of aluminium sheeting or something like that embedded in the bank and they can't get it out, um, then to relocate that item and try and identify it, you know, having those photographs is going to be useful. Yeah, I think that, that's a very good point, Chris. And I, I think for you know, with mobile phones that just about everybody has, take yep. uh, photographs without disturbing the, you know, whatever's found because, you know, this not only is it a, a crash site which needs to be carefully analysed as to why, you know, the tragedy happened, but that uh, Chris talked about the loved ones, you know, they are grave sites too. There's a sacred nature to what needs to be recovered because those bodies are not in proper resting places. And right. so people need to be very sensitive. They think they've found something that maybe hasn't been disturbed before uh, to be very respectful and, and take photographs, identify the coordinates and don't do too much else. Yeah, totally Absolutely. agree. Yeah. Yeah. Have, there, have there been aircraft that were missing for a long period or even a reasonable period um, that have been found and the bodies weren't with the aircraft? Um, I'm just trying to think offhand. Um, there is one case only, I think. Um, the longest time interval in my book was 39 years for an Air Force aircraft that was later found. The only one I know that was, um, wasn't was included in my book, but it was a close call, was a guy called Armstrong, uh, I think is the, mm-hmm. the correct name. And he was, um, was a crashed aircraft in the Ruhenis. And that was found about a week or two after the aircraft went missing. And the, so the aircraft was located. There are photographs of that wreck. And, um, but the, um, the pilot himself had obviously wandered off and uh, presumably you know, perished in a, in a snowstorm or through hypothermia. Oh, wow. Gosh. That'd, that'd be even worse, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, for the families to find the aircraft and then not find him. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That one's been in the papers quite a bit slightly down here and I think that was in the New Zealand Herald too you probably saw it wouldn't you have Richard yeah I think that was NZ277 the one that Errol Clinch found uh, no that was the one I think interesting thing Dave is Chris has mentioned about the one being lost after 39 years another Oxford uh, discovered after 32 years uh, in Australia the Avro 10 the Southern Cloud missing for 27 years before it was discovered I think what it all gives us is some hope <laughs> that you know, aircraft can be found. Yeah, those example yeah. here in New Zealand, I think it was NZ102, missing for 39 years and discovered. So, right. um, you know, and I, I think most of the aircraft, um, uh, the 16 aircraft that are still missing that trace, I think they're all likely on on um, on on ground and not in the, some will be in the sea, but most of them are actually, you know, in an area like the Corsair in the South Island, like the Dragonfly, like some of the Cessnas. Now they're waiting to be discovered. Yeah, right, right. Have any of you looked into uh, the lost aircraft, the lost New Zealand aircraft that were overseas in the Pacific, like the RNZF aircraft, um, into where they might be? Yeah, well, I personally left um, the RNZF aircraft World War Two out because obviously you've got a, a, a quite a large number of those um, through the Solomon Islands and up into. Um, you know, the rebel and around those sort of areas. Um, yep. But I did include in my book uh, three Royal New Zealand aircraft that were en route to New Zealand. There was one coming out of Guadalcanal heading through to Norfolk Island and then on to New Zealand. That was a DC-3, which is the greatest loss of life of any of the aircraft. And right. then there were um, five aircraft from memory, five Hudsons coming back from uh, Fiji. And... Um, Probable scenario there was they, they climbed up over a, um, a large thunderstorm approaching front, 
um, and the several of the the crews basically got hypoxia. Uh, two of those aircraft never um, were found, and their crews were lost. Um, but the reality is, we don't know exactly what happened, and so it is possible that they, all three of those aircraft could be uh, very unlikely, but could have been found, you know, either in, on land in New Zealand or in our territorial waters. So those are the only ones I looked at, and uh, certainly, yeah, it would be an interesting. Um, a book for somebody to do to, to look at all those aircraft that uh, were missing in the uh, Pacific during World War Two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the case of the um, Douglas Dawkins that, uh, that that Wigram's got now. That that wreck was found in 1987, I think it was. That's after, yeah, yeah. after crashing in 1944, and so that was interesting to see that found and brought back. Yeah. Yeah, and there's also a case of a, um, a caddy hawk that was lost up in um, around Rabaul in the um, Papua New Guinea. And same thing there, the, the pilot was actually, um, in that case, fortunately located, and his remains were buried at a, um, a war cemetery nearby. So, um, yeah, people, you know, aircraft were being found up there. Right, right. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, so... Richard, can you tell me about your website and and uh, how people can find your book? Um, um, well, my my website is um, not so much about lost aircraft, but it is about civil aircraft in New Zealand, and um, and the way to look at that is uh, uh, New Zealand um, NZ Airline Research NZ Airline Research But I think one of more interest is Gavin's uh, one, which is find lost aircraft. .co.nz, yeah. Findlostaircraft.co.nz, right. Yeah. And you've, you've got a website for all your uh, various goings on too, haven't you, uh, Chris? I used to, yeah. <laughs> it was called oh, uh, war, warbirdsite.com. Well, I actually checked it recently and it sort of dropped off the uh, off the web there because um, with a sort of a small operator, so I'll need to look at resurrecting that. But uh, if anyone's interested in um, yeah, purchasing my books on the, the first one was Missing Aircraft, 1928 to 2000, then they can simply sort of contact me through um, my business, which is uh, Red Cat Biplane Flights, which is uh, based at Pukeki. Yeah, on Trade Me, isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Place. yeah. I've put a lot of people onto you on Trade Me. Yep, so. yeah, thanks. That's <laughs> <laughs> what it's Good all about, isn't it? <laughs> it's, 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 still, it's still all all in all our interests for everybody, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and Richard, you've uh, also organised various events um, in terms of uh, memorials to crash sites around New Zealand, and um, that includes uh, not a crash site, but of course the the um, the famous dragonfly we've been talking about. You've you've had an event uh, re regarding the, the the loss of that, haven't you? Yes, I um, one of my projects was to there was nine pioneer airliner accidents from the 19, late 1930s, 1938 to 1963, the Kaimai Range DC3, and there were 70, um, 73 New Zealanders killed in those nine accidents. So myself, Graham McConnell, Peter Lane, we set out to make sure there were permanent memorials to those Kiwis who, you know, literally paid with their lives for the, the contribution towards, you know, aviation understanding and development so that we can fly safely today. And uh, so we, we did a lot of work with those memorials, including uh, an additional one there at uh, Wanaka Airport for the Dragonfly. And, of course, we don't know where it is, but there was no place uh, for uh, Captain Brian Chadwick and his four passengers. And... Again, I'm I'm pretty determined that there is these people deserve at least their name on a on a, um, a bronze plaque and a, and a place that's you know it can be people can go to and and and, and remember and respect uh, their memory. So yes, we've worked over many years to do many memorial plaques and uh, air crashes as well as the dragonfly that is lost and waiting to be found. Well, I think that's wonderful. It's it's great that you've been doing this. Um... Just fantastic. Yeah, I think an important point there is, of course, that um, you know we here we are talking of missing aircraft, but I mean we've equally got to remember, and more importantly, that of course it's about missing people as well. So Absolutely. you know the work that Rich has been doing with his um, um, sort of co-workers and bits and pieces, I think it's just absolutely fantastic, and um, it's just so nice to be to, to know uh, that there are memorials and that those people are not forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's amazing. Um, you know, it's something that I, I I'll bring up, but I don't know whether I'll actually leave this in the in the final edit. But uh, the reason that I got onto thinking about doing this episode 
um, the other day when I first contacted you guys. I was reading an article online about missing trampers in New Zealand who have just vanished without trace. And this article is a couple of years old, but it said that there's 78 people who have just mm. absolutely disappeared while they're tramping. Mm. And and I was just like, holy crap, that's mm. just incredible. Mm. You know, usually they get, you know, trampers, you just assume an Iroquois goes and finds them or, you know, a search party goes and finds them. But 78 missing people in the bush. And it's not like we've got bears or, you know, coyotes or anything like that. So mountain lions. So it's kind of strange, but... um. Well, actually, no, just... Dave, on that very point, if you look at Chris's um, Chris's book and the contents page where he's listed all the aircraft and missing with that trace, you could quantify quite easily how many people in those 16 aircraft. I don't know, Chris, if you tell us off the top of your head, but it's a surprising number in those 16 aircraft. Right. Right. Yeah, I've got to tally up um, uh, a little bit. A little bit confusing, some of it, but I, I figured there's 10 to 12 air, aircraft on land with a total of around about between 30 to 36 people as to which um, aeroplane class has been on land and not. Um, and then as Chris hinted to, there was 20 people on the DC-3 and another 14 in the Hudson. So it's a fair mm. few Zealanders, you know. And when you yeah. think of how many millions they spent looking for MH370, uh -huh. the New Zealand government, but for one New Zealander, it's sort of a bit out of proportion. <laughs> so. mm, good point. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> um, it's not the thing I was thinking too about on the website. One thing I found I, was, I, was, I never thought of at the time was the amount of family members and um, that have contacted me, and they're just over the moon because they almost see my website like a memorial to their families too, you know. And um, I've got so many um, sort of really, really neat. Neat email sent to me, you know, over it, and which is, comes in really good because sometimes I get quite down the dumps and just feel like giving the whole lot away, and then you, out of the blue, another family member will pop up and thank thank you for all the hard work you've been doing, you know, and um, you might have seen the TV program um, on EBU the TV3 one, the, the family members for that were just, they just seemed to think I'm some great, great big hero or something for because <laughs> I've spent time looking for their family, you know. And I, I just, I actually, you know, I'm just little old me and I sort of feel a bit embarrassed because um, I just wish I could do more. You know, what I do is really nothing for what needs to be done, you know. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I can understand it. it. It must be hard for those families because once the, once the official search party is called off, then the public just forgets about them and forgets about the search and forget about the missing people. They forget about the families. And, um, you know, I, I've met people who have had um, sons or, or not sons, obviously, but, um, you know, uncles or whatever who, who were missing in action during the war. Mm -hmm. And the families, even, you know, 70 years later, is still, oh, yes. it's, right. it's still hard for them mm -hmm. that, they, that they don't know what happened to that person. So, and the, the wartime guys, they're still getting remembered. And the, the ones who go missing when they're just hopping on an airliner or, or going for, a, you know, a joyride or, or, you know, a simple flight in yeah. New Zealand, it, yeah, diff difficult, I guess. I think that's right, Dave. I, I think, um, you know, Anzac Day gives us an opportunity to remember those in the Air Force. And I think for the civil flights, the charter flights or whatever, people can easily be forgotten. And my last chapter of my lost book, I, you know, talked to the families of those who are, you know, linked to the Dragonfly, the five people on board. And it's just fascinating hearing the stories of what they went through immediately, you know, coming months after the accident, the tragedy, losing a, a father or a brother or a son or that kind of thing, and then how it plays out over the years. And I think, you know, Chris and Gavin, you're right that people have got long memories and, and these things still hurt, you know, years and years on. So, again, it's just a, it's kind of a little bit of a sacred task, isn't it, finding aircraft that deserve to be found because... They are foreign intruders, um, and uh, people haven't chose to be where they are, and that's why I think they can be found. I've had one or two people ask me over the years, or or challenge me to say, oh, you know, let the dragonfly, the Devlin dragonfly, you know, um, stay where it is, and I've always sort of 
can push back on that and said, no, it is a foreign intruder and it deserves to be found. And I think I'd say the same for the other aircraft as well and the people that are still on board. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with that. So um, and any final thoughts from you guys that you just want to get out there to the public before we close? Probably just keep looking. Keep your eyes open. <laughs> yeah, I think when it comes to anniversaries, Dave, um, you know, people writing articles, particularly in the newspapers, more popular uh, work, you know, different even books and website too, but anniversaries of, of some of the tragedies, the aircraft going missing, I've found can the media can pick it up, you know, 50 years, 40 years, 20 years or whatever it is. So I think, you know, if you've got a bit of an interest, be deliberate about looking for an anniversary and you might spark a renewed interest that who knows might lead to something. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, that's one thing I was thinking about, you talk, talking about how dense stuff is. There was one place we went into down Okarito where I, I believe um, it was the area that um, the Turner family disappeared in. That was, you know, the four people on a 172 um, ZKCSS. Um, that one, um, we, we found it was that dense there. There's a, a tree called a kiki and it's like a little fern that grows like a vine. And at one place there, we were probably 20 to 30 feet above the ground, um, peering down between the branches, walking across the top. You know, it was just so dense. So. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was the densest I've been in. You know, I was moving at about a foot a minute, probably, because every foot you had to make sure it was, you know, you were stable, otherwise you go down through it. And, you know, I actually didn't think I was, I thought we were going to get stuck out there all night because we just, it was a long way home and trying to fight that sort of stuff was quite frightening, you know. Yeah, I can I can imagine. There must be, you know, in that really dense bush, it must be difficult to keep your bearings because you can't see any landmarks, can you? Oh, lots of places I go, there are big valleys and mountains around you, so you have no real problem with that. But it's just, you, you can't move very fast. You know, even up in Jacobs River there, there was places I, I actually had nightmares just thinking about it. Um, right. It's so dense, uh, and, um, and you don't know how long it's going to take you to get back to camp. It might take you an hour, it might take you five hours, and of course by then you've run out of daylight, you know, it's just, um, you know, with the GPS as well, you know, you're pretty pretty well covered, but, um, you know, I, I always have a PLB around my neck because it's just so easy to fall down a hole or anything in there, you know, it's just, it's absolutely frightening some of the places, so, you know, I'm, I'm getting shivers up my back talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You don't want to go missing yourself, do you, when you're out there looking for other people? So You need to be about 20 years old or something bulletproof to do it. You know, when, when you're getting older, you sort of um, get more aware of what can go wrong. You know, and, and it, you know, a, bit, a lot of times I thought I was going to be dead, but I thought, well, somebody's got to do it. So you just go and do it, you know. So, um, you know, wondering whether you're still going to be alive, <laughs> you know, within the next half year. So. It gets like that at times, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things you just got to try and overcome your fears. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a um, fascinating talk, and, and uh, I'm really glad that I can get the story out through the Wings of New Zealand show, and hopefully a few more people will start looking as they're flying. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Dave, for all the good work you're doing. Oh, no problem. Yeah. No problem. Thank you for all the good work you're doing. It's been it's been really good having you guys on on this. Um, and I just I wish you luck in in finding all, all of these aircraft. Yeah, I mean, at least, right. at least finding one of them, you know. Uh -huh. yeah. Very good. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Bye. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.